Hi everyone, welcome to HubShots episode 85. We talk about sub-workflows, HubSpot messages targeting, and many, many more interesting things about HubSpot. Now, this is a podcast for marketing managers or sales professionals who are using HubSpot or are considering using HubSpot. My name is Ian Jacob from Search and Be Found, and with me is my co-host Craig Bailey from Zen Systems. How are you, Craig? Really good, and I'm amped up on the caffeine tonight, I have to tell you. I know, the two coffees have done it for you. I know, I've been having one coffee a day, just trying that, and now I had two today, and I'm, I'm just set me right It's going to cracker of a night. I'm hypersensitive <laughs> to caffeine now, so it's great. All right, on to our inbound thought of the week, Craig, and this is... Again, in terms of our series that we're talking about, about landing page optimization. And this is uh, from Talia Wolf. And so we're going to pick up part two of this, which is about call to action optimization. So this is a really key thing with landing pages. And so what are we going to take away from today? Craig? Yeah. So this, again, is talking about this state of of awareness of the person that's on the page, the visitor, are they going to fill out a form? She gives a very simple example. If the call to action is subscribe now, that's not going to work if they're actually looking for a solution, but they're not yet convinced. So she gives the example, uh, maybe the call to action is learn more about our solution, schedule a demo, those kinds of things. So it's just a reminder, you know, you can work on the copy and all of that. You get right down to the form and then you see the form and just says subscribe or, or submit or something like that. Yeah. There's a really simple way. You can just have that action, that like kind of the action words in the button to actually improve conversion rate. Yeah. And you know what I love about this? It's all about taking to their state of, state of awareness with the call to action. So again, we've talked a lot about lead flows and about the lead flows where they come in or being actually really prescriptive to that page that it's on, not just doing a blanket lead flow. Great if you're starting out. Do a blanket one. Better than nothing, right? But really, this is the next step in call to actions on your site. And this is, this is one of those quick wins that you can actually do really well. Takeaway for this particular item is go and actually look at how your lead flows are performing in the tool. So you can go and have a look at this, analyze that. Pick a lead flow and create an A-B test, right? Now, in except the basic version, you can't do this. But in professional enterprise, go create a B test of a call to action that you can test and apply these rules to that and see what results you get. Yeah, and stick around for shot six. We're actually going to talk about some ten top 10 creative ideas for actually the text you can use on a button. Yeah, absolutely. And onto our HubSpot marketing feature of the week, Craig. So last week we discussed about workflows. And now this, we're going to talk about calling from workflows. Yes. So this is one of my favorite powerful features of workflows. So as you said, last week, we started the discussion around HubSpot workflows. They're one of those underused parts of the the toolkit. Uh, So a simple workflow we've got in place. I'm actually going to talk about what I'll I'll call an advanced uh, tip for using workflows. So this is if you've been using workflows for a while. Uh, within a workflow, the steps in a workflow, you can choose many things, send an email, send an internal email, set a property, those kind of things. One of the the really powerful actions that you can choose is enroll the contact in another workflow. Yep. So from your workflow, you're actually calling another workflow. Yep. I call these the ones that you call sub-workflows. That's not HubSpot's terminology, that's just mine. So I kind of think I've got a parent workflow and then I can call a sub-workflow. And so I've got a screenshot there of the HubSpot workflow tool and how you would call it. And it's really simple. You just uh, enroll that contact in another workflow. However, 
here's the really cool part. Those sub-workflows, what I'll call a sub-workflow, they can be fully contained yep. in their own right. So you could you can almost create little sub-workflow modules or units that you can call from a bunch of workflows. Yeah, right. Now, you with, you, you, I'm, not, I'm not sure if I'm explaining this well. It's kind of hard to see or listen to. But I think you've got to kind of picture it. Yeah. yeah. So you can imagine you've – here's an example. A nurture workflow where someone's signed up for an e-book. They're yep. going through a process. They're going through a general workflow. I'll call that the parent workflow. As part of that, you can actually fire off these sub-workflows, enroll them in sub-workflows, and they just get pushed into that workflow and they continue in the parent workflow. Yep. So what you can do is make the, the sub-workflow a completely self-contained item that then has its own checking. So um, one of the things about workflows, they have goals, and a goal is a good way to basically have someone drop out if they're already a meet those criteria so that's actually a way you can just shoot the contact off to that sub workflow and let the sub workflow work out whether they actually have the they complete the actions in that sub workflow so it's a really nice and powerful way of kind of itemizing or atomizing items uh, that you can push a contact into and having those all available and then from your parent workflows you can just push them to that so that's the concept parent workflows and sub-workflows, think about it and think about ideas. Next episode, I'm actually going to walk you through some of the practical examples, how we use these in global nurtures, how we use them for controlling life cycle states of contacts and those kinds of things. So, yeah, can you tell I love workflows? I can tell you do. It was a bit like lead flows. Yeah, it is. It is. I'll actually talk about... Okay, no, I won't... (laughs) Talking about lead flows and workflows. So I'm looking forward to the example. This is an advanced implementation of workflows within the system. So we'll come back to that next week. All right, the marketing tip of the week, Craig. And this is a tip for Databox. Now, we spoke about Databox last week as a new tool that we're using and testing out and also some of the great things that it can enable you to do, right? What we want to talk about here is about rotating data walls. Now, these are like the screens you see, essentially, and I didn't realize you could do this, but this is actually really interesting, isn't it? Well, that's right. So data walls, they're like a dashboard. And as we discussed last week, as you said, the advantage of data walls or dashboards is you can just send a URL to people in your team. They don't have to log in or anything. They just get this pre-made dashboard. And they're called data walls because quite often they're broadcast, you know, big telly that sits on the wall in the yes. office. People can see those high-level KPIs. Yep. It's updated regularly. But the great thing is... What's if you've got a data wall and you've got a bunch of them? So here's a typical scenario. We've got a data wall pulling in HubSpot stuff. We've got another one that's maybe got some AdWords stuff on it. We've got another one that's got MailChimp. We've got another one that's pulling in some GA stuff. Now, in Databox, you actually can have multiple sources on the one data wall. But it's really nice just to have them nice and big. So you might just have a few widgets on each. And then with Databox, uh, you can basically say, well, let's rotate them around. So let's yep. say you've set up five or six data walls. You just rotate them around. It's really easy. And I've got a screenshot there of how you action that. Our sales feature of the week, Craig, is actually messages. So messages went live uh, on the 26th of April. So that was a little while ago. I thought I'd get to play with it in beta, but you beat me to the punch. Not by much. Not by much. <laughs> But, but nonetheless, I've gone and implemented it, you've implemented it. But while I was implementing it, I said, oh, I, I think in one of the steps as I went through it, I went, oh, have you seen this, Craig? And so this is uh, in the setup, right? So basically it says that you can actually, how do I describe it? It's kind of like certain things that you can display the 
messages it's too, dis- right? It's display criteria. Yeah. And what was really interesting, so you can display it to everybody, right? You can display it to visitors that meet the sales view criteria, what they say. Visitors that meet a smart list criteria. Now, that's really cool. And only known contacts. So people that are actually only in your database that they know about will get displayed the message box. That's right. So, and by the way, sorry, we should just mention for anyone that's not aware of what messages is, it's like the chat window. So you're on a website, you know how those chat boxes uh, pop up in the bottom right hand side. Messages is HubSpot's version of that. As you said, it's just been released recently. Which is a part of Sales Pro. So you need to have Sales Pro to have that feature enabled. And what you've just highlighted, this targeting, I think is is a killer differentiator. Absolutely. So you might have OLARC or Snap Engage or a live chat on your site and you think, well, that's great. I've got a chat tool. Why would I use messages? Yes. Here's why. Because it's tied into Facebook, you can actually have a different chat box pop up based on the audience. So let's say they're a customer. You can actually have the chat box pop up with the face of their owner. So like their account manager yeah. because that's the HubSpot owner based on a smart list, right? Exactly, yeah. Oh, I know who... Oh, so the chat box comes... I know that person. Yep. But then, say you're a complete new visitor to the site, you don't want to be talking with the senior salesperson or your account manager. You're talking to someone else maybe in support, that kind of thing. So they see a different chat box. Correct. That's a differentiator. There's there's not many chat... I actually don't know of other chat tools can even do this, but I know we're using OLARC with some customers. You can't do that. Yeah. Messages, you can. And what I love about it is that if you are the HubSpot owner for that contact and you're online, you will actually see that person that owns that contact speak to the person who's online. Exactly right. Massive differentiator. Yeah, and also based on, I think um, one of the ways you can target is where it appears on the site as well. So you could say, oh, if we're in the support section of the site, and they're an unknown, uh, and maybe they're, they are actually a customer, then yes. you show the support person. Yep. I, I, it, this is a differentiator. Massive I, I don't differentiator. know why they're not promoting this from the... Uh, don't worry, we're doing the promotion for Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> um, HubSpot messages, there you go. Big thumbs up from us. Yeah, and you know what? If you're concerned, why not just give it a try for a month? What better way to try it out and figure out what works and what doesn't? All right, on to our opinion of the week, Craig. I'll tie this back to marketing at the end a little bit but really this is just a um out of left field opinion from me and this is around faux outrage you know how on people jump onto social and they talk about how they're so um uh, offended and yes. outraged about particular topics or things that happen um one of the things i was reading reading mark manson's book uh, we'll put a link in the show notes is talking about this whole idea that we, we, all, we often think about this faux outrage as being a waste of time or, you know, it's um, don't waste your time on it, which, of course, is correct. Here's another way to think about it. Uh, faux out- outrage or this eagerness to be offended by stuff, yep. it's actually really selfish because it sucks the air or the attention away from actually valid causes. And I found this quite... Uh, what, what would I say, um, liberating in my mind in terms of how to approach it because, yeah. you know, you get the advice, I just ignore it because it's wasting your time. No, yeah. actually ignore it because if you engage to tell people why oh, they shouldn't be offended by something and yeah. things like that, you're actually helping to suck attention away from valid causes. So the real victims aren't getting the attention that they should. I think that's a really... Um, I guess, a useful way to think about it. 
And uh, we've got an example here of Media Watch, which is an Australian media show, highlights um, Australian media. And they had a good example about how someone happened to make one Twitter comment uh, on a particular public holiday and how it just blew up. They apologised, they deleted the tweet, but people just love to jump on. And, of course, you could say, oh, I'll let them, you know, waste their time doing it. But the whole point is, no, you're actually taking attention away from valid causes. Real victims are not yes. getting the attention that they should. Just tying this right in at the end around marketing. There is a tendency within marketing to jump onto issues and causes to ride them, this whole idea of newsjacking yep. and using that for marketing advantage because if it could be faux outrage or that people talking about it. Let's use, you know, let's jump on it with a trending hashtag and have yeah, a contribution. Yeah, yeah. And my comment is as a marketing uh, manager or marketing uh, strategist, avoid that. Because you're actually um, impacting people and taking attention away from people that should have the attention. So anyway, there's my opinion of the week. I'll just throw it in there. Fantastic. On to our creative top 10 of the week, Craig. Now, do you ever sign up for newsletters? It's an interesting question. I'll give you my comment in a sec. Do you? Rarely. When would you sign up for a newsletter? Uh, If I really love the content would be one. I would sign up if I was... (laughs) So I've been shopping around for things for my wife for her birthday and Mother's Day, and quite often when I landed on sites with products, you know, sign up to our newsletter, get get 10% off or get a $10 voucher. So that's the only time I would. But now I valid, I'm, I question the validity of why I'm doing that because my goal is obviously just to get that discount, right? Not to read anything that they're going to send me. Now, if there was something different associated with it and the voucher, that might actually help me from not unsubscribing from it. But that's probably the only time I would, to be honest. You know, there are so many ways to access content these days and getting a newsletter is not really... Like, I get HubSpot newsletters and so on just to, because I don't go and read the HubSpot blog every day. But, you know, there are plenty of RSS readers to get content and to stay up to date with things. So, so what we're going to have is actually 10 ideas for calls to actions for a newsletter sign-up form. Now, this ties back to the whole thing about CTAs that we were talking when we first started. So we were 10 ideas about how to do it. Yeah, so, and this is because um, typically the default button has submit. That's right. And we're kind of like, I think we can do better, all right? So I I actually think it's fine to say, send me your newsletter. I really like that one. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Send me your newsletter. Sign me up, number two. Yep. Number three, I'm in. Yep. Number four, hit my inbox. Yep. Number five, get started. Yep, I like that. Number six, I'd like to receive your weekly newsletter. Yeah. Very, very prescriptive. Yeah. Um, number seven, I think it's time. I think it's fine to just have a bit of a uh, bit of fun with it. So I said, I welcome thee into my inbox each week. You know, it's kind of just silly, but people might be more inclined to click on something that's a bit unusual. Number eight, see you on Friday. That's a cool one. I so you're setting good. expectations yeah. for a particular day. Yeah, that's right. Um, number nine, just make sure I can view it on my mobile. I think this is good because how many newsletters do you get where you can't read on mobile? Still, it's just like, oh, and this one is, okay, I'm signing up, but just make sure I can view it on my mobile. And number 10, subscribe. Yeah, I think you should always have a control, right? <laughs> <laughs> Test it again, yeah. I think with all of these things, it's about being real and being realistic with what people are getting. So what is the user's frame of mind when they're subscribing? Are we 
are we just doing what everyone else does or are we actually being unique and creative about it? I think that's what attracts people. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, just going back to your point about how you'd, you sometimes sign up to get the offer, well, you could have variations on that. Instead of send me your newsletter, it's send me the 10% off coupon or whatever. So you can always try. The whole point is try variations. Everyone's sick of saying submit or subscribe. Try something new. Yeah. All right, on to our podcast of the week, Craig. And this is the Authority Hacker Podcast. So I kind of listen to this podcast on and off, but it's a really good podcast because they talk a lot about SEO and about internet marketing. And so there's two guys, Gail and somebody else who I've forgotten his name. But look, most most of this podcast ranges in vicinity of like 30 to 40 minutes. Why I like it, it's a, he's got some really well-tested, trusted um, ideas around search engine optimization and about doing things on your website and online. So I kind of listen to that for a bit of a break and to see what other people are doing. So nice one. I actually haven't listened to this podcast, so I'll put that on my list. So have a, have a, have a, have a sticky beak at that one. All right, on to our resource of the week, Craig. Now, this is about a duplicate content recap. Yes, this is a common question we get from customers. They say, oh, yes. I'm going to put this page on, then I'm going to copy it uh, and change it. So, for example, I've got a general page on a particular topic. Oh, now I want to make one uh, location-specific, a Sydney version, a Melbourne version, etc. And they say, oh, are we going to get a penalty in Google from uh, duplicate content? And it's a good question because, one, they've shown actually they're aware of this whole content um, criteria that Google has, uh, and, two, they want to make sure that, you know, they're optimising. So I actually think it's good when a customer asks me that, shows that they're educated about it. Uh, Then what I normally do is uh, talk them through this idea of a duplicate content penalty versus a duplicate content dilution. And the link we've got today is a resource of the week from um, Sean at Hobo Web in the UK, who I love his stuff. I've subscribed to his newsletter. There's an example. Really? Yeah. He's a SEO special. He's excellent. He's been in the industry for years. I love his content. And I, that's one I do recommend. Yeah, right. So every month or so, I get a newsletter from him talking about he's a piece of content. Yeah. And it's always good. Okay. Great content. So he's got one about duplicate content. And it's really just bringing us up to date on the whole idea of a duplicate content problem. And so a few quick takeaways. One is that there's no such thing as a duplicate content penalty as such on your site. There is this potential for Google to see, oh, there's three versions on your site. I'm going to pick the one that's most relevant. So don't expect all three to rank. All three won't rank, but Google will pick one. Now, that could be problematic if you're potentially diluting Uh, the opportunity you have there. But a good example of where it doesn't is when they are location-specific. Here's the Sydney page version of the page. Here's the Melbourne version of the page. Based on where people are searching from, Google will pick the right one to display. So that's a good example. Where duplicate content can sometimes get you into trouble is if your content appears on lots of other sites. So let's say you were the source of a great piece of content, but then other sites had it. It's not as though you're penalised, but Google gave, for example, they ranked the other site higher than you. So although you're not penalised as such, you actually didn't get the ranking. So you, you actually missed out. And so that's a problem. So we've talked about this before when we have content maybe that gets shared, say, for example, a HubShots episode, which we then post on each of our own sites, we make sure that the HubShots version goes live a week or two 
uh, before the others because we definitely want Google to index that first and know it's the canonical source. There's all kinds of things you can do with canonical URLs, etc. But the point is, it's not a duplicate content penalty, but it can be a problem if you don't plan for it. And so there's more of it in uh, his uh, site, uh, uh, in his post. And it's, it's a long read. It's well worth reading. And he quotes from Google representatives as well. So I hope that's useful. And um, if you've got any questions about that, duplicate content, please leave us a, com- uh, a comment and we'll respond. All right. And finally, on to our quote of the week, Craig. And this is from Damesh. It says, many companies have forgotten they sell to actual people. Humans care about the entire experience, not just the marketing or the sales service. To really win in the modern age, you must solve for humans. Every process should be optimized for what is best for the customer, not your organization. Which wise man said that? Damesh. And on that note, if you'd like to leave a comment, join us on our Facebook or WhatsApp group and be a part of the community. We'd love to help you out. And if there's ever any HubSpot question that you've got for us, please feel free to drop us a line, leave us a comment, hit us up on WhatsApp, and we'll be happy to help you answer those questions. So, Craig, until next time. Catch you later, Ian. Thank you for listening to this episode of HubShots. For show notes, resources, HubSpot news, including practical strategies you can implement, visit us at hubshots.com.